When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Well, basically, I got this question a lot when I was a kid, and I didn't really understand why people thought this, like that they thought that it was something to ask me in particular. I just had no idea. Like, we've never even talked about eating dog at home. So I didn't, you know, I didn't know. That was Salejo, and she's talking about something that many of you will find sort of horrifying eating dog. Soleil grew up in Chicago and New York. Her family is Vietnamese. And as a kid, she had no idea that people ate dog. Her family didn't. They never talked about it. And so when people asked her if her family ate dog, she was totally flummoxed. But today she knows that some people do eat dog. And she also knows something more about why people asked her that question all the time and what it means to answer it yes or no. Asian people, especially in the diasporas, we tend to just say no as a blanket statement, even though like we know that there are people in a lot of our countries who do eat dog, but it's just so much simpler to say no. We are not going to be spending this whole episode on the question of whether or not it's okay to eat dog, but it does raise an interesting bigger picture question. Why do we eat the animals we do eat? Or more to the point, why don't we eat all the animals we don't eat? We, by the way, we're Gastropod, the podcast that looks at food through the lens of science and history. I'm Cynthia Graber. And I'm Nicola Twilley. And this episode, we are exploring how we choose which animal is for dinner, at least for those of us who eat animals. Horse, rabbit, guinea pig, even hippopotamus. We'll dig into it all. So there are a few things to figure out before we tackle the question of why we do or don't eat specific animals. First of all, how many species are actually edible? To answer that, we called Hal Herzog. He's a psychologist and the author of the book Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat. Why it's so hard to think straight about animals. My inclination would be to say that nearly all animals are edible. I'm sure there's some that are not, but if you actually look at the uh, number of types of animals that people have eaten, it's absolutely extraordinary, all the way from uh, flamingos to uh, crayfish to a, a meal that I had not too long ago, which included jellyfish. So there's an enormous variety of animals that we could potentially eat. But we mostly don't. At least on a regular basis, we don't eat a, even a small fraction of those animals. We eat very few animals. Paul Rosen is a psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania. So we in the United States eat beef, cow, pig, and lamb. That's about it for mammals. That's three mammals out of about 4,000 different species. That's essentially zero, right? We eat chicken and turkey. That's two birds out of thousands of bird species. We don't eat any amphibians. We don't eat, eat any reptiles. Uh, we eat a range of fish, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 20 species. 
out of thousands. And we eat a few kinds of shellfish. We eat basically none of the animals that are around. Yes, we know some of you listening do eat other species than the ones that Paul just listed, but these are the only animals that most people in the U.S. eat. So these few animals that we do eat, it actually seems like they're kind of the special ones. But what's so special about them? How did they get to be the ones we eat? Well, it could be that this makes sense rationally. We've chosen these animals because they're the best food animals around. These are the ones we've chosen to domesticate. This is actually a well-known theory. It goes like this. There are something like half a dozen basic criteria that an animal has to fulfill to be a good candidate for domestication. It has to not be a picky eater, it has to breed at a young age and in captivity, it has to be docile and not skittish by nature, and it has to have a social hierarchy so that it can recognize humans as the boss. This is the theory that cows and sheep and chickens met all of these criteria, and these were the ones that could be domesticated. So they were the candidates for dinner. And that's why our ancestors were motivated to domesticate them. You know, the, the question is always, why did we domesticate the chicken or why did we domesticate cows? And the obvious answer to start is like, well, we clearly wanted, we were hunting them because we wanted to eat them. And then we started domesticating them because we wanted to eat more of them. Gregor Larson studies domestication. He's a professor of evolutionary genomics at Oxford University. And so as Gregor explained, that's the theory on why we eat the animals we eat. We liked how their wild ancestors tasted. They fulfilled these half dozen criteria for domestication. End of story. For those of you who listen to Gastropod regularly, it might not surprise you that we are now going to poke holes in this theory. Because that theory rests on an assumption. About the nature of our relationship between humans and animals and that because we eat them now, that means that's why they came into a domesticated relationship with us. Gregor and his colleague Naomi Sykes, she's a professor of archaeology at the University of Exeter, they've been working together to try to test that assumption and tease out why we did in fact domesticate different species, the species we now eat with such abandon, like chicken. Because they're not convinced it was for food. So uh, in terms of the chicken, for instance, because we eat chickens now, that's all they're for, right, is for food, for, for meat and for eggs. The assumption is that that's always what they've been used for. And all of the evidence that we've got at the moment suggests that's not the case at all. Chickens were not domesticated for food. Um, all the evidence that we have suggests that really they were domesticated for things like cockfighting and for divination and not for food at all. Gregor and Naomi pointed out that to our ancient ancestors, animals were often representative of gods. We sacrificed animals to gods, animals embodied gods. Early humans painted animals, we sculpted animals, especially the ones that we came into most contact with. Initially, when they first have a really close relationship with people, they're seen as very, very special. So the last thing you're going to do is want to eat it. You're going to want to look at it and be amazed by it. So these animals might have looked special and amazing and worthy of a painting or worthy of being sacrificed, but they didn't necessarily look like the best source of food. The initial chickens that were being brought into first the Levant and then into Europe and then into Britain were much scrawnier. And the amount of effort it would have taken to kill one and then defeather it and then eviscerate it in order, it would just would have taken way too much time. And the chickens that were running around, around then bear no relationship to the chickens we're used to now. And there would have been much less incentive to eat them on the kind of scale that we're used to. Gregor says it's a mistake to look at a meaty chicken today and assume that our ancestors could somehow imagine that the scrawny, colorful birds they were interacting with could one day, with a few thousand years of selection, turn into that. 
He calls it a presentist fallacy. I mean, how could you possibly know that what you were, how you were integrating and interacting with an animal would somehow lead to modern day chickens? This is all accident, it's happenstance, it's shifts in that selection pressure. Naomi says this chicken story is representative of domestication in general. In fact, the more we look into domestic animals, the more we find that actually these animals are never domesticated for food. That's just something that we project onto the past because all we do is eat animals for meat. Whereas sheep, pigs, I don't buy that any of them were domesticated just for food. Naomi's myth-busting doesn't stop there. It's not just that these animals weren't domesticated for food. It's that domestication as an intentional human-led process is also kind of a myth. I think that rather than us domesticating animals for food, we fed the animals and they started hanging out with us. So it wasn't that they were providing food for us, we were providing food for them. The sign do not feed the animals is there for a reason and it's because we cannot stop ourselves feeding animals. It makes you feel that all is right with the world. And rather than um, actually latching onto these animals as a cheap source of protein, I think it's the other way around. I think they come close to us. This theory is, to be clear, still a theory. Gregor actually doesn't think it's the whole picture. Still, Naomi and Gregor are collaborating to try to trace these more complex, surprising stories of our shifting relationship with animals. They're using ancient bones and studying the types of cut marks on the bones. They're looking at ways that genes change over time and when traits associated with newly domesticated animals emerge. They look at iconography and they also find clues buried in language. Male, female, juveniles, adults, we often use different words to describe this, whether it's food or whether it's hunted or whether it's found in certain places and times. And so that record is a nice, almost kind of like an archaeological record, but in the language to see how people's relationships with those animals are changing as well. So by looking at all those different scales through time and space and combining all of that data together starts to give us an appreciation for that changing relationship. So Gregor and Naomi are busy using all these tools to disprove our initial hypothesis about why we eat the animals we eat that those are the ones we chose to domesticate because they tasted good and they fulfilled the criteria for domestication. So Gregor and Naomi don't think that we domesticated those particular animals because we wanted to eat them, but they also don't even believe in those six criteria for domestication that Nikki laid out, like that the animal has to be docile and reproduce in captivity and has to have a hierarchy to recognize us as boss and so on. They think that maybe almost any animal could be domesticated under the right circumstances. So the big argument has always been you cannot domesticate gazelle, right? Gazelle are not predisposed to domestication. But Naomi told us there are communities in India that have pretty much domesticated the gazelle. They're close with them. So I think that any animal can be domesticated. It depends upon the relationship. But for the animals that we did domesticate and now eat in large numbers, Gregor and Naomi are trying to figure out when that relationship changed. Like with chickens, when did we start eating them? At first, like Naomi said, our ancestors were marveling at these jungle fowls' gorgeous feathers and using them for all kinds of spiritual rituals. And we're feeding them and protecting them and making them feel super doted on. And all of this love and attention means that what started out as just a few special birds eventually becomes a crowd. When they start to then breed and you get more of them, perhaps people might start thinking, oh, these numbers are quite high. And then maybe somebody eats one and then decides that it's quite tasty. And then if there are enough of them around, they lose their special status. And that's when they become more food. So it's about population density and sort of like familiarity 
breeding contempt, really. So the last step that you can have is when you can start eating something because now it's kind of irrelevant. I have to say, this whole story was kind of shocking to me. We originally developed a close relationship with chickens because we thought they were maybe a link to the divine. And then only later we thought about nuggets. Nuggets are a presentist fallacy, Cynthia. As it turns out, our ancestors weren't being remotely logical about this whole animals for food process. If they were, maybe they'd have chosen insects to farm instead. After all, insects have a lot going for them. They're high in protein. Paul Rosen seems to think that they taste good. They're not as good as steak, but they're pretty good. And they are very sustainable, very easy to breed. They don't take up much space. They're even easy to slaughter. You can just cool them. You know, they're just going to torpor, so this is a torpor they don't come out of. So they're very efficient, they're very good nutrition, they have animal protein. Farming insects would have been a much more rational choice than cows in a lot of ways. And it's not even as though our ancestors just decided to ignore all these other factors, the nutrition, the sustainability, the yield, the ease of slaughter, in favor of just choosing the most tasty animals. Deliciousness is a tough one. I don't have a real good answer to that. I mean, are we positive that cows are among the three most delicious mammals in the world? We are not. In fact, Hal says that there was someone in the 1800s who dedicated himself to cataloging all the animals that humans have found delicious throughout history and around the world. There were, unsurprisingly, far more than we eat today. It's a lovely little book published in 1859 called The Curiosities of Food or the dainties and delicacies of different nations obtained from the animal kingdom, written by Peter Lund Simmons. It's quite an extraordinary book. It's a a catalog of creatures that were eaten in different times in different countries. And we're talking all the way from from elephant toes to flamingo tongues uh, and everything in between, including the the myriad types of beetles and bugs, spiders, bats, uh, aardvarks, uh, virtually everything. Take those elephant toes, for example. Peter Lund-Simmons says they are a decadent luxury, especially when pickled in vinegar with cayenne. Or the blue-colored flesh of the toucan, apparently a most delicious morsel. Or how about the flesh of the manatee, white and delicate, with fat that tastes like sweet almonds? I have to admit, I'm getting a little uncomfortable here. I'm feeling really unsettled about the idea of eating elephants and manatees. Even Peter Lund Simmons was a little uncomfortable with the concept of eating a manatee. He said that it's hard to eat an animal that cuddles its young like a manatee does. But this goes back to the main question we're trying to get to the heart of. Why do we avoid eating certain animals? Why am I so uncomfortable with the idea of elephants and manatees as food? I am too, and I think it has to do with the fact that I know elephants are pretty smart and they have super cool matriarchal societies and they seem a little like us. That's probably what was so disconcerting to Peter Lund Simmons about manatees cuddling their young too. It seems almost human. So, you know, clearly the, the more closely a you know, species is related to us, you know, is a factor in how we treat it. But it's not the only factor. And certainly, you know, we think in our culture that, you know, the idea of eating a a chimpanzee is is horrifying because it's so similar to us. Uh, Where in other cultures, they don't think that way at all. Right. Plenty of cultures do eat animals like chimpanzees and other apes. So it's not a given that we avoid animals that are like us or that are smart. We in the West say we don't eat dogs because they're smart. But what about pigs? The current thinking is that pigs have the intelligence of the three-year-old human, which is more than dogs. And what about octopus? I've seen video of them solving a Rubik's Cube, which is something I've never been able to do myself. 
but I eat both pigs and octopus. So clearly a creature's IQ is not the deciding factor for whether it's edible. One of the things that occurred to me when I was trying to figure out why eating a manatee made me uncomfortable is maybe because it's cute as it's cuddling its baby. And baby elephants are definitely adorable. I think grown-up elephants are quite cute too. One of the biggest factors in terms of how do we categorize animals is how cute they are. And uh, so for animals that have big eyes or appear to have big eyes, for example, like the giant panda, you you know, we think of as being basically like us in some ways because they trigger a very human instinct, the maternal instinct is that big eyes are characteristic of human babies. That said, have you seen a lamb? They're adorable. I think cows are pretty cute too. Or piglets. Piglets are cute and smart. Some people love to pet goats and many people, myself included, love to eat them. So we don't choose animals to eat based on how cute they are or how smart they are. But are there other reasons we might choose not to eat an animal? Like, Maybe we avoid ones that look gross. Because in theory, if we Westerners were avoiding eating cute animals, which already seems kind of like it's not true, but if it was, then maybe logically we should be huffing down their less attractive colleagues like worms or slugs. And I think we all know that Western eaters are not running to the nearest worm or slug farm to pick up dinner. In fact, Hal thinks ugliness makes Americans view animals as inedible. I think that sliminess is certainly one of those factors. An alien appearance And uh, so too many legs is definitely a factor. Spiders. Not enough legs is also a problem. And uh, one of the most, you know, feared animals, of course, snakes, in some ways they have a a space alien quality almost by not having any legs at all. So maybe there is something to this theory that we avoid certain animals just basically because they're revolting to us. They're disgusting. But what makes an animal disgusting? It's actually hard to define disgust. Disgust is thought of as an emotion. It's a sort of a, a set of feelings and expressions and uh, actions. The uh, feeling is a sort of a revulsion, a little bit of nausea. The action is usually to withdraw. Paul Rosen is a world expert in disgust. In English, it means bad taste. This is bad and gust is taste. And in some other languages, it has that origin. And I believe and many people believe that it originates as a get this out of my mouth. That's the literal and probably original meaning of the word. But disgust has gotten broader than that. Because things that are often bad tasting, like say if you don't like broccoli or you don't like beer, you don't usually say they're disgusting. You just say they taste bad. Whereas earthworms, you'd say that's disgusting. And you don't even know if they taste bad, right? Because you've never had them. So uh, disgust is built on the system that is the bad taste system, but it becomes independent of that. It's a different kind of reaction. Paul gave us an example of this expanded meaning of disgust. Nazis are disgusting. That's something that most people would say. But you're not really thinking of eating them. You're just thinking of having anything to do with them. So it becomes generalized as we grow up from get this out of my mouth to get this out of my world. Or I sometimes say get this out of my soul. And so now when we say a particular animal is disgusting, like Paul said, we usually don't mean that it simply tastes bad, like the earthworm example. Right. I don't even know what an earthworm tastes like. Although I did make my brother eat one as a kid. And you did that because you thought it was disgusting, even though you'd never eaten it. It's a reaction to a food, not because of its sensory properties as much as because of what it really is, what what its nature is. And it turns out that there is a tiny shred of emotional logic to the idea that we shouldn't eat animals that we find disgusting. 
because disgust is tied to our biggest fear. We say that there are other things that are biological things that somehow remind us that we are animals, that what properties we share with animals. So, for example, we share our guts with animals, our insides. And the feature that we share with animals that's most concerning to us is death. Animals die and we die. Paul and his colleagues, their theory is that looking at a body part that's recognizable at the dinner table, a heart or a liver, maybe deep down it triggers thoughts about our own mortality. And really, who wants to think about their mortality at the dinner table? That's understandable, at least. But honestly, for the most part, our disgust reaction, it isn't logical and it isn't really understandable. Disgust is an emotion response and it can clearly be irrational. So, for example, if you ask people why they won't drink their favorite juice if we drop a cockroach, a dead cockroach, in and take it out quickly. They say, I won't drink that juice anymore. And we say, why not? And they say, usually, well, you know, cockroaches are disease vectors. I don't know where the cockroach has been. I could get sick. We say, okay, we'll do it again with a sterilized cockroach. This cockroach is safer than your fork. Okay, we drop it in, take it out. I don't want it. So in that sense, it's irrational in the sense that there's no danger associated with a sterilized cockroach. Bugs have become something that we think are disgusting, that bigger meaning of disgusting. They're intrinsically somehow bad and gross. And thus, they pollute everything they touch. I know my discomfort with eating bugs isn't logical because I eat lobsters, and they're basically just big bugs. This gets to a really interesting issue that has to do with our relationships with the animals generally and about human thinking generally. And it's the question of how much our thinking is rational as opposed to how much is emotional and based on basically just what you might call gut feel. Frankly, so far this episode, the evidence is mounting that how we choose which animals to eat is not logical at all. And it's not fixed forever either. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap. Because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel, which means a 4 p.m. checkout. And those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. What we perceive as tasty can change quite dramatically uh, and sometimes fairly quickly. Hal has one example of a food that made a rather quick flip from disgusting to delicious in the West. When I was a kid, the idea of eating raw fish would just seem absolutely disgusting. And I never would have foreseen the idea that sushi would be one of the absolute delicacies on the, uh, you know, on the menu at high-end restaurants. So eating raw fish to me is a a real interesting example of a type of animal flesh that at one point is seen as being just repulsive can become Uh, because of cultural change to be seen as a delicacy. Although my mom still thinks sushi is disgusting. Paul says this sushi example is actually a great demonstration of one of the most effective ways to make inedible flesh seem edible. Basically, if the people around you like it, if the people you respect like it, 
uh, your heroes like it, that's a good way to get to like it. And that's what a lot of advertising is about, showing desirable people enjoying something. Sushi is one example of elites influencing what everyone else eats. And we have another fun one that's too complicated to include in the episode, but we've saved it for our special supporter email. Find out more at gastropod.com support. But there are other motivations that can pretty effectively make inedible animals look kind of tasty. It's not all about keeping up with the Kardashians. If you're short of food, you'll expand the number of foods you're interested in, including eating things that are at least mildly disgusting. This is something you see during famines and siege situations, but this short-term desperation can create long-term change. Naomi told us about her research into the history of horse meat as food. Horse is an animal that has flipped at least twice. So in Kazakhstan, where the horses were domesticated, they were definitely food. And actually, throughout most of time, wherever you have horses, they are food. And in Britain, they were food for a really long time. So it's, again, another project that we're working on at the moment is looking at that shift. When did horses not become food. And again, this goes back to religious beliefs. So it's a papal edict. It's an 8th century law where they say, actually, okay, guys, we're trying to convert everyone to Christianity. And a good Christian person does not eat horse. So could we just snuff that out? And in fact, everybody did stop eating horses, including the French. So nobody's eating horses. They've been transformed in Europe from food to non-food, from delicious to something that would be disgusting to eat. But then in the late 1800s, there was a movement to reintroduce horse as food in Europe and America. There were a lot of horses around. Of course, they they provided most of the transportation. And people thought it would be a cheap and available source of protein, especially for the working classes. Harriet Ritvo is a professor of history at MIT, and she's written extensively about human-animal relationships. I mean, you know, in extremis, of course, people do eat eat horses. I think as part of the uh, in response to rationing in the Second World War, the Harvard Faculty Club put horse meat on the menu. And um, when I was an undergraduate, much later, I hasten to say, but when I was a senior, my tutor, as a reward for, I don't know what, maybe my finishing my thesis or something. Anyway, he took me to lunch at the Faculty Club. And decades later, horse meat was still on the menu, although it has disappeared subsequently. And he encouraged me to order it, so I did. Just for the record, Harriet's not a fan. But apart from the rarefied atmosphere of the Harvard Faculty Club or during the shortages of war, horse didn't really catch on again in Europe and America. Except for in France, where it's still on the menu today. My French exchange in Lille fed at me for dinner on my first night there. Horse was easy to find in the grocery stores in French-speaking Switzerland, too, where I was an exchange student in my teens. Naomi says that what happened is that the French in particular were so hungry in the 1870s when they were being besieged by the Prussians that they actually fully embraced horse meat. So it's due to their famine that kind of overruled the cultural associations and brought it back on the menu. Apparently, the rest of us just weren't hungry enough. Okay, so, so far we've come up with elite influence, religion, and famine for the trigger for flips. And then Hal told us a pretty recent story about an indigenous people named the Tharo in Nepal. An anthropologist was visiting in the late 1970s, and he observed that the Tharo slaughtered buffalo for their festivals, but they never ate them. Buffalo were, for reasons nobody really knows, were tabooed in terms of eating them. This anthropologist finishes his fieldwork, goes home, 
And then he comes back 12 years later for a visit. And he was sitting around with his friends and they were drinking beer and uh, you know, playing cards. And uh, they said, you know, are you hungry? You'd like to get something to eat? And he said, sure. And he was shocked to find out that they brought him a meal of buffalo. And he said, like, wait a minute, you guys don't eat buffalo. They said, oh, we've changed our mind. We eat buffalo now. Hal says this anthropologist thought there might be two reasons for that change. First, it was a matter of economics. Buffalo became cheaper and more people could afford it. Secondly, Nepal had gone through some pretty big social and political changes in the 12 years he'd been away. And he argued that the people were more free in their choices in life, including their choices of, of things to eat. And so, you know, to me, this is a good example of how even deep-seated things like our preferences for food can change really rapidly under, under certain circumstances. Maybe it was the economics. Maybe it was the social change. Maybe it was a bit of both or something else altogether. We just don't know. But Hal thinks these examples of moving food from yuck to dinner are the exception rather than the rule. For the most part, we stick to creatures that we're familiar with. I think it's difficult to change food preferences in general. There are certainly a lot of examples from history of people trying to expand the menu of animals we eat and failing. Let's go back to the late 1800s. This was a time when Western populations were growing really fast and people were worried about feeding everyone. And it was also a time when Westerners were busy exploiting their colonies for all sorts of resources, like maybe edible ones too. There was a whole movement at the time to make species importation official. It was called acclimatization. And people in Europe, America, and Australia formed acclimatization societies. And acclimatization is the organized effort to transfer animals, also plants, that are considered to be desirable from one place to another. This was an era of bold explorers. And as Harriet says, some of those explorers were explorers of meat. In the kind of high Victorian period, there was a sense, on the one hand, from the perspective of Europe, well, it would be entertaining to have zebras and kangaroos hopping around in the pastures, but also to import different kinds of deer and antelope to diversify the table. Those Victorian explorers were particularly excited about the largest antelope species in Africa called the eland. It is configured much more like a cow than most antelopes are. People thought, that's a nice big animal and I want to eat it. They were excited. And so the British Acclimatization Society held a big dinner where the centerpiece was a leg of roast eland. And the press... The press did not eat it up. A contemporary report described the eland as, quote, barbarous, offensive, and useless. Eventually, the British Acclimatization Society fizzled out, and Eland is still not on the menu in England today. All of these people who were trying to introduce new types of meat, they were kind of utopians. They had visions for how new animals would solve the needs of their fellow countrymen, animals like the hippopotamus. This is my favorite acclimatization story in 1920s America. The plan was to turn the swampy parts of Louisiana into productive, meat-producing ranch land. Hippo ranches, specifically. There was a businessman and a local congressman behind the scheme. A New York Times editorial at the time said hippo brisket was delicious. They called it lake cow bacon. And, of course, Americans do not eat Louisiana hippo for dinner today. In the end, this fabulous scheme... It just wasn't practical. The two hippo entrepreneurs tried, but they couldn't get the animals. They couldn't work out the slaughterhouses. There's no hippo supply chain. 
which animals we eat, it's not just about what we find palatable. Part of why we eat the animals we eat, at least nowadays, turns out to be because those are the ones our food system is set up to handle. So there's a logic to that infrastructure issue. But still, as we've said, this question of what animals we do eat and which ones we wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, Gregor agrees that it really isn't rational. There's a whole lot of arbitrariness and randomness in the way that these relationships play out. And it's also about how those attitudes get baked into what you eat when you're born and what is popular and what is not. I mean, it becomes a, a sneetches with your stars on your belly situation where what I eat now, and if I start to think about it, it's because that was what was on the table when I was growing up. For those of you who didn't grow up reading Dr. Seuss, the sneetches in his story, some had stars on their bellies and some didn't, and it was random. But the ones with the stars discriminated against the ones who didn't have stars. Gregor's point is that today and throughout history, we've used which animals we eat and which we don't as a way to distinguish between us and them. Think about the original papal edict that banned horse eating in Europe. That horse meat is for heathens and good Christians don't eat it. It's us and them. Look at the horror of my fellow Brits at French dining habits today. They eat horse. They even eat frogs. In fact, we call them frogs, and not necessarily in a super respectful way. Which brings us back to Soleil Ho and the question she was always asked growing up. Do you eat dog? Soleil is a journalist and host of two podcasts, Racist Sandwich and Propaganda. And she recently wrote an article for Taste called... Do you eat dog? The implication of that question being all Asians eat dog. And it is an image that really cashes in on these like ancient prejudices that the West has had against the East. And it's like inscrutability. And, you know, it causes you to ask, like, why why would they do that? That's insane. And, you know, that's a question that's been asked of of the Orient for millennia. Like Soleil says, this discrimination, this racism against Asians from the West has been going on forever. In America, the idea that Asians ate dogs was really hammered home during the Filipino War at the turn of the century around 1900. Eating dog was sort of the mark of like savagery. And so an easy sort of shorthand for insulting the enemy or just separating yourself from them so it's easier to, I don't know, kill them. Easier to kill, but also easier to feel as though America was doing a good thing by invading the Philippines and civilizing these savages. And then they won't be eating dog, they won't be like running around in loincloths, so and so. So it's kind of been this very interesting political tool for imperialism and just for the project of racism in general. This was taken to a genuinely outrageous extreme in 1904 at the World's Fair in St. Louis. Again, it was a colonial era, and a staple of any good World's Fair at the time was something called the Human Zoo, where Americans could queue up to gaze upon savages. And so at the St. Louis World's Fair, there was a display of Igorot people from the Philippines, and there was a huge to-do about how they would slaughter a dog to eat every day. And, you know, that was written about in the papers and people were really excited about it. And what was really interesting was newspapers would write about it, but they would also mention every time there was a dog or cat missing in the city, they'd be like, oh, maybe it was those Filipinos. But it's a century later now. We must have moved on from this obviously racist and xenophobic stereotype, right? I wish. Soleil pointed out that in 2016, a candidate for state senator in Oregon campaigned to reduce immigration because, quote, these people eat dogs. 
In 2016, he's saying this. They didn't know how to go to the grocery store. They would just steal people's pets and eat them. And that's why we shouldn't allow Somalis or Syrians into the U.S. If we're not being totally clear, the sentiment behind this is racist. Like the law introduced in California in 1989 that said it's illegal to eat pets for food. That was anti-Cambodian. But in general, it's just anti-immigrant, particularly anti-Asian sentiment. They don't deserve to be on the world stage. They don't deserve to have a seat at our table they're going to bring dog to to dinner. This is obviously a stupid and offensive position. And it's especially stupid because humans, including all our ancestors, have been eating dog for a very long time. In North America, the first evidence of dog eating was from about 9,000 years ago uh, when they found a petrified feces that clearly indicated that the individual who uh, deposited the feces was eating not only dogs, but dog brains. Hal says the Aztecs had special dog species they bred as food. According to Gregor, this is the same story as with chickens. Dogs were special at first, and then we figured out farming. And suddenly when they lose their value as hunting partners or as venerated members of your community, now they're just kind of there and, okay, every so often we'll just eat one. So everyone ate dogs, but not anymore. Well, in our culture, the reasons why uh, we don't eat dogs is because we love them. Uh, We've had in the last 20 to 30 years, we have a phenomenon called the humanization of pets. And the uh, humanization of, of pets is that we're increasingly thinking of pets as people, as members of our family. But people who think their dogs are people too? Those are not the only people who have decided not to eat dog. In other parts of the world, people don't eat dog because they're loathed. For example, in parts of India and in parts of the Middle East, people don't eat dogs because they think dogs eat corpses, because dogs eat feces, because dogs eat vomit, uh, that dogs are unclean. So we have the same behavior, not eating dog, but for completely different reasons in different cultures. The end result is, today, not many cultures in the world eat dog. But let's get back to the question that plagued Soleil throughout her childhood. Did her family ever eat dog? My family is from South Vietnam, and we would never eat dog. And so to be conflated with with eating dog for them is a bit insulting because they're like, no, we're from the South, not from the North. So, But what that means is some people do eat dog. Soleil didn't know anyone in her own personal circle who ate dog, just that her family said that North Vietnamese did. So she asked around, and she spoke to people who told her about dog eating in Korea, North Vietnam, some places in China. Including Andrea Wynn. James Beard Award-winning cookbook author and all-around rad person. And so she was someone that I knew would be able to talk about this because she's been close to it. And her family has a history of it. Andrea's family grew up in North Vietnam. Her parents ate dog meat stew there. And what I found really evocative about her story was how she talked about growing up in Southern California. And of course, her family didn't eat dog in America. But on rare occasions, her mom would put on her Sunday finest and wrap a whole pork leg in newspaper and throw it into the fireplace to emulate dog meat to make mock dog stew. Mock dog stew aside, today, as Soleil says, Andrea's family doesn't cook dog. Dog isn't for sale as meat in the U.S. anyway. But even if it was for sale, they probably wouldn't be eating it because not eating dog is the trend. Even in the places where dog is seen as meat, the younger generation are increasingly westernized. And it's another of those aspirational stories like sushi 
Westerners see dogs as pets, and so now, so do younger folks in China and Korea and Vietnam. So as we've just described, this dog story, like everything about the animals we do or don't eat, it isn't straightforward or totally logical. Some people don't eat dogs because they hate them. Some people don't eat dogs because they love them. Some cultures have some dogs as pets and some dogs as food, which actually was common throughout human history. But it's not just dogs that are a source of this kind of conflict. Really, these kinds of rules and discrimination and arguments about what is edible, they apply to all animals at one point or another, in one place or another. Meat is also, not only is one of the favorite foods of humans, it's the most tabooed food. So the fascinating thing about meat is that it's a great source of ambivalence. It's a loved food that we also have very strong negative feelings about. Paul says that meat is the most tabooed food, like how cows are taboo to many people in India, or pork and shellfish are taboo to Jews, or buffalo had been taboo to the Tharu. There aren't nearly as many taboos around fruit and vegetables. And finally, there is actually some genuine logic to this. Humans are made of meat. And the animals that we eat contains pathogens that are potentially pathogenic to humans as well. Because animals are like us. They harbor similar animals. Paul's point is most of us, many of us, eat meat, but we're anxious about it for a whole bunch of reasons to do with the fact that we are also meat. On the one hand, animals are more likely to trigger that emotional, irrational disgust response because they remind us of our animal nature ultimately our mortality. But more logically, in the past, animals were more likely to harbor pathogens, parasites, bacteria, viruses, pathogens that could also make other animals, like us, sick. Either way, meat is just more stressful. And the end result is that we tie ourselves in knots trying to make up stories about why it makes sense that we eat the animals we do. For instance, even people in Korea who do eat dog find a way to say these are the ones we eat and these are the ones we don't to make it seem rational. The dogs sold for meat, for example, they're given a different linguistic category. They're called neuronji. And they are putting in different color cages. So they put them in cages that have sort of these pink bars. And that also designates that they're meat dogs. And they also look a bit different. They uh, look, to me, disconcertingly like Old Yeller. The end result is that you can tell yourself that the meat dogs are not like the pet dogs, and so it's okay to eat them. When, in fact, the whole category of pet is arbitrary. Like rabbits. Some Americans and Europeans keep them as pets, but others eat them. Guinea pigs in North America, they're pets. In South America, they're food. People all over the world play these kind of mental games with their meat. When Paul was doing fieldwork in rural Mexico decades ago, he was in a village where people saw grasshoppers as meat. But only certain grasshoppers. Grasshoppers gathered from the field were edible. Grasshoppers gathered from your house? Disgusting. For no logical reason. A big part of why we create these categories is to make sure that some animals, the ones we want to eat, they're distant from us. That way it's okay for us to see them as somehow lesser, as food. Naomi told us that you can see this change play out in how we talk about chicken. When chicken started being only about food, that's when you start getting chicken-related insults. Your chicken. Your bird brain. Chickens are no longer something to be admired because we want to eat them. And we want to feel okay about that. Naomi started keeping chickens herself, and she saw this very phenomenon play out right at home. We hatched some eggs and ended up with a cockerel, Gunther. 
right? And he was just the best cockerel ever until he went cock-a-doodle-doo for the first time and just became really aggressive and nasty. And my partner, Richard, decided that he needed to dispatch Gunter. But we don't like killing things, like what human does. So it was really interesting observing Richard's behavior for two weeks when he had decided that he was going to do it. I watched him go from like really liking Gunter to just like always vilifying him. It's like Gunter, you know, he was crying really loudly this morning and he was using it in that same sort of cognitive dissonance so that he could bring himself to kill and then, as it turns out, eat Gunter. I think there's still a pot of Gunter in the freezer. At this point, I am forced to conclude that none of this really makes any sense. And it seems as though every culture makes up its own stories that it tries to pretend makes sense. But I do have one question we still haven't addressed. Why do some cultures eat more animals when Americans eat so few? That's a good question, and we don't really know the answer. But we can say, looking around the cultures of the world, for example, the Chinese eat a lot more animals and more parts of animals. They don't eat all animals, but we don't know what percent. So uh, we are a particularly narrow choice in this country. We eat a lot of meat, but we eat very little kinds of meat. So the answer is cultures vary enormously. Turns out there's no logic to this either. And really, in the end, you've got to make this decision for yourself or rely on your culture to make the rules just to make life easier. But what this means is you really can't judge others for which animals they choose to eat. There are a couple of moral issues that are important to me when it comes to animals. One, if the animal was farmed, was it treated well, was it raised as sustainably as possible? And two, if it's wild, is it endangered or overexploited? These are my big lines in the sand. That said, I have a pretty strong ick factor and there are a lot of animals that would be really tough for me to eat. But I do recognize that it's not necessarily for any logical reason. It's phenomenal, really, how... We are living with a legacy of more or less arbitrary decisions where it's never about the animal. It's all about how the animal is tied into cultural traditions and ways in which we are doing what the Joneses are doing or being told not to do by the people above us or wanting to follow what the elites are doing or the elites deciding it's no longer cool so they're not doing it anymore. And all of these things playing into our current perceptions of consumption, which then we reify as fixed and this is the way it's always been. And anybody who does something different than me is completely wrong and foreign and bizarre. Whew. Thanks this episode to caffeine and painkillers and chocolate. This was such a hard question to wrangle, and we couldn't have done it without you. Thanks also to Soleil Ho, Hal Herzog, Paul Rosen, Naomi Sykes, Gregor Larson, and Harriet Ritvo. We have links, as usual, on our website, gastropod.com. You'll want to check out their books and articles and research projects because there was a whole world we couldn't cover. Although some of you will get some of those extra stories in your special supporters email. Donate five bucks an episode, and you could be among this lucky group. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a timely tale. Everything we make has been through a time machine in one form, shape, or another. Uh, occasionally, we use them to make things nature can't. But yeah, no, we, we generally manipulate everything we make in one way, shape, or form, or another. 